with a different piece of hardware that I acquired, and uh, it uh, didn't work at all. So I, I am a little frazzled from dealing with that for a chunk of the morning. Uh, so if you have crying children, please use it because, yeah, as I, I, I see Mark heading out, so he's heading downstairs to cry, I guess. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray in preparation for the message. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, quiet my heart as I, as I uh, prepare to bring the word. I pray that you would um, just give me a peace as I, as I dig into the scriptures, as I uh, unpack what the word of God has to say, as I um, just preach the gospel. I pray that you would help me to um, pray that you would help me to, uh, to, to be succinct, but also to just put everything out of the way that isn't the gospel, that isn't um, um, preaching, preaching this, this church, this body to, the, to your sheep to, to find new depth in Christ in this season. Um, I pray that you would uh, give, me, give, me, uh, give me your spirit in doing this. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, probably if you all have been around me long enough, most of you all have heard this story. Uh, when I was working at the children's home, uh, this I don't remember when this started. This would have been probably, I don't know, 18 years ago or something crazy like that. Uh, but the, the uh, addiction treatment program that we had, um, whenever like they would have a new client brought in, and you could pick them out a mile away because these guys would come in, and a lot of them, it was mostly boys at that time, and a lot of these boys would come in, and they'd be just way too big for the britches. And they would show up and they'd be trying to put out a tough front so that people would, you know, act the right way toward them. And they were trying to pretend that their lives were together and that they were, you know, really gangster or whatever. And, and the first night they were there for dinner, this guy who worked there, his name was Dave DeCamp. And he kept a bottle of uh, hot sauce, uh, Dave's Insanity Sauce, uh, in the fridge. And um, he would pull that stuff out. And I don't have a bottle of Dave's with me. I have several at the house. Um, but I do have a, bottle, a box of hot sauce I picked up yesterday, and I'm really excited about because um, every review I read for this is that it is just ridiculously, absurdly, uncomfortably hot. And, and so what Dave would do with his hot sauce is he would um, pull it out on the first night the kid was there, and this new client would uh, be sitting there minding his own business, uh, and the clients, everybody else who'd been there a while, they all knew the joke. And um, so they would say, oh, yeah, that stuff's so good. Give it to me. You know, oh, no, give it to me first. And then somebody would say, I bet the new guy couldn't eat that. I know he's not nearly tough enough. No, that guy looks like he's, you know, like he's, he's too soft to eat that hot. And they'd go on and on and get him egged up. And eventually they'd trick the guy into eating it. And he'd spend the rest of the evening crying and drinking milk. And it was sort of the icebreaker. And, and inspired by a uh, Christian film I watched, I decided that I would start eating this Dave's Insanity sauce with every meal in order to build up a, a resistance to Iocane, I mean to Dave's Insanity sauce. And, and over time, like I would do just a little drop in my food or I'd get a little wooden skewer and stick it in and spread it on, you know, my sandwich or whatever. And over time, I, I developed quite a resistance, and I would eat the Dave sauce like it was nothing. I'd just pour it on like ketchup. And so then when new kids would come in, I'd say, oh, give it to me first. And everybody knew, and they gave it to me, and I'd dump it on my food and eat it like it was nothing. 
And I can't tell you how many times guys would say, if that guy can do it, I can. And I, uh, I love hot sauce. And actually, there's a joy to eating hot sauce because, like, like spicy foods, like, they release endorphins in your brain, right? But it does take a little effort to get to that point. You can't just, you know, jump into it. I remember once my daughter, uh, when she was a toddler, got into the fridge and picked up my Dave's ghost pepper sauce, which is significantly hotter. It's about, I think it's like a third the potency of, like, commercial pepper spray. Like, it's, it's hot, and she touched her eye and cried for quite a while, and, and I got in trouble. Um, but the difference between eating one way and eating the other, the difference between consuming something and finding it, like, uniquely tasty, and other people trying it and wanting to spit it out and cry because it's too much for them, is building up a palate. You could say a resistance, and there are those who build up a resistance, but I don't think it's a resistance. It's building the enjoyment and building the ability to taste without, you know, or killing your taste, but it's whatever. Um, it is a preparation process that takes, that takes a while, right? And sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's not fun, and sometimes it's hilarious when you're at a youth convention and you pull out your Dave's ghost pepper sauce and pass it around and kids pour it on their pizza, and, you know, you get to enjoy the... the, the harmony of crying children. Um, today we are going to talk about preparing the way for the Lord. Um, as we approach Christmas, there is, there's a lot going on. And in the ideal version of knowing Christ, in the ideal version of what Advent was originally, you spent this season preparing. And you spent this season consuming the goodness of the Lord, and reflecting on your sin, and reflecting on the grace God gives you, and reflecting on all of these things, and you build a spiritual depth and palate that makes it so when you get to the day of and you celebrate, it's more than just presents. It's more than just, oh, I forgot batteries. It's more than just, you know, I remember when I was a kid, or, or the Clark Griswold perfect day, or what have you. Um, it's about Christ. And because you know Christ and because you've come to know him, you taste him and know he is good. Um, but to taste and know Christ is good is not an instant process. We need humility and we need an awareness of the greatness of what God did for us. We need to silence our hearts and create space. We need to push all that shopping and stress and house cleaning and, oh, wow. I'm going to put that over there where I can't knock it over. We'll be passing around for samples later. So we are in Isaiah 40. I'm going to give you a little background today. Um, we did pull some of the Bibles because we're going to try and have, like, the same Bible everywhere. And there were a bunch of, like, ratty paperback ones, and I really would like to replace them with nicer ones. And I have not done that yet. I apologize. Um, but our, our a little background. So we're doing our Advent series. Last week we talked about the idea that the Lord is coming. This week we are doing... Uh, this Isaiah 40 passage, which is prepare the way for the Lord. And so real quick, what is Advent? Advent is like, it's like Lent light, right? You know, you spend six weeks before Lent, like fasting or giving something up, and you're supposed to be praying and attending different style services and doing different spiritual habits in preparation for celebrating Good Friday and Easter. Like that was the original purpose of it. Advent is a less intense version of it. Um, that goes for about four weeks before Christmas. Originally it was six, but they cut it back to four. 
um, I don't want to get into the history right now, but um, why do we observe it? We observe it because um, Christmas is an opportunity to remember that God gave us a gift. He gave us a gift in Christ, and we observe it to prepare ourselves to celebrate it, to develop like the ability to taste the goodness of God, his holiness, and have it be sweet in our mouths, not a burning thing that, that fights with our sin. It's a great analogy, right? Um, and so last week we talked about the Lord is coming, and we looked at some of the messianic uh, predictions and all these different things that they said were going to happen. This week we're going to be looking at um, this Isaiah 40, and we're going to dig a little bit into the Gospels, but we're going to hang really heavy in Isaiah. Um, and so, oh, that just happened. And now I ended it. Okay. Uh, come on, technical stuff. Okay. Last attempt, and then we will uh, wing it. And I'm sure it'll be much smoother when I wing it. What do you think? Okay. So we're going to be in Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. I'm not putting the verses on the screen. If you would like a copy of this, by the way, to take notes or to take home, there is copies of the slides on the back table next to the devotions I wrote for this week. Um, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Um, and real quick, before we get into the text, so up until this point, like Isaiah is the, is the first prophet that starts telling the nation of Israel, all right, God is about done with you guys. You have rebelled, you've worshipped other gods, you've done this, you've done that, and he is going to judge you, and you're going to go into exile. And Isaiah begins to talk about the fact that Babylon's going to invade, they're going to sack the city of Jerusalem, they're going to kill almost everybody they're going to burn the temple down, and they're going to take the entire remaining part of the population home to Babylon as slaves, except for the people who had no value, just saying. And so, like, bottom rung of the society, like, you got away with something. You got to stay home um, alone, uh, which is what the uh, film is in reference to. Um, and so Isaiah spends the first 39 chapters of the book talking about this destruction and judgment that's coming. And every here and there, he sprinkles in a little bit of, God will deliver you. And starting in verse 40, we begin to read like what a lot of folks call second Isaiah, where the tone changes, and it becomes all about God delivering his people, all about God saving his people. And the ancient Israelites believed that this was from exile. But it's not. This is about saving us from our sins, though he will save them from exile. And there is some of that in this book, but... Whatever. All right. Um, so 41. Uh, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So first off, this is a night and day contrast to what came before. Up until this point, it has been doom and gloom. You are in trouble. Oh, my goodness. You know, I am so angry. I am going to make you all wish you weren't born. I'm going to blot you out of my sight. I'm going to wipe out the country. And it is brutal. And then this. Um, there is, it's night and day. She has received double. This is a really cool bit of phrasing. Now, what it is, it's a financial term, which is kind of cool. In ancient Israel, if you owed a debt, so like if, you know, one of Josh's friends owed me $20, which he does, I would have a written out piece of paper that says, 
Josh's friend owes me $20. And I would nail it to the doorpost. And everybody in town would know when they walked by, Josh's friend owes Eric $20. And, like, it would be there for the whole world to see, and everybody would know, and, and that would just be out there. When you reach the point that you had paid off the debt, they would make a second one that explained that it was paid, and they would nail it over the top so that everybody could come and see that the debt was paid. But here's where this gets interesting. In this text, Israel has received double. And what that's talking about is talking about this idea that the debt has been paid, but Israel did not pay the debt itself. The debt was going to be paid by God himself. And that's implied in the rest of the text. But to receive in in double means that they got their sins, they committed their sins, they owed this debt for their rebellion and all this other stuff, and God would pay it off for them. And it is actually, I don't know, has anybody ever had somebody pay off their debt in a surprise? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that like a glorious thing, like to suddenly realize I am not going to be paying for the rest of my life or I'm not going to be under the weight of this thing I can never pay for or I can never earn my way out of because that's how sin works. We can never actually dig our way out. And this text, this prophecy is saying God is coming and he's going to pay it off himself for us. So if we look at this in terms of the exile, it doesn't work. Because Jerusalem, like the Israelites, are taken off into slavery and they stay for like 70 years, right? But they didn't pay anything. They were just taken off to debtor's prison, right? Like they were spit out of God's mouth or whatever. Like, like they were punished, but that's not paying off a debt. Um, it doesn't actually work that way. And the ancient Jews had a lot of trouble with this text. And they interpreted it in a lot of really unusual ways because they couldn't quite fathom how it was that God himself would pay it off. Or, as we get into verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Um, And I would highly recommend, by the way, that these verses are all in Handel's Messiah. And if you listen to them, they're beautiful and amazing. And I can't read them out loud without sort of hearing that. Um, You could, if you sneak in in the middle of the early morning hours, you might hear me sing it. It's not beautiful or good, um, but I do do it. Um, so all four Gospels include um, John the Baptist, and they all apply this text to John the Baptist. Everybody with me? So John the Baptist was a very, very popular Jewish preacher who preached in the wilderness, and he wore our, an outfit made out of camel hair and a leather belt, and he ate locusts and honey and all kinds of other stuff, Right? And if you read that, like from Jewish eyes, this guy is Elijah come again, which we see another prophecy later that says Elijah would come again to prepare the way for the Messiah. But the ancient Jews read this and they're like, well, wait a minute, who is this voice that cries in the desert? And a lot of people assumed it was Jewish people who went in the desert and repented. Um, But it doesn't work. And we'll get to why in a second. And in fact, actually, if you read the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they translate it like sideways, to make it fit that understanding rather than what it says, which is, you know, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Um, 
We're going to get into what that means exactly in just a second. But the ancient Hebrew here very clearly is talking about this idea that this messenger comes, that this messenger is like a herald. Do you guys know what a herald is? It'd be like if I were to pay someone to go ahead of me to announce I was coming. You know, Eric is here. I was looking this morning at uh, how to buy a royal title in another country, uh, which you can do. Ask me about it later. I'm considering purchasing a knighthood. Um, and if I did that, I could have people go ahead of me and say, Sir Eric of Big Sandy, which doesn't really ring well. <laughs> I work on it anyway. But I would have somebody who goes ahead of me, and then everybody would know, like, oh, man, we got to clean the house before he gets here. Or, oh, man, hide the cookies or whatever it is. Like, people would prepare for my arrival. But this voice in the wilderness that's going ahead is a herald. And what it's saying is, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, this is something that has significance in the ancient world, and I'm going to tell you how. There is a Greek queen, right? Um, I cannot pronounce her name. I didn't put it in the text because, sorry, it was so weird I couldn't do it. But she was not unusual. It happened several times. This Greek queen, um, who was uh, one to 200 years before Isaiah wrote this, she was traveling. She's very wealthy. She was very powerful. Her story is likely about half made up, just so you know. Um, And she comes to a place with her entourage where there is mountains and rough ground in front of her. And they stop, and she says, I will not travel through this mountains, through this rough ground, these low spots. Go ahead of me and prepare the way. Make the valleys raised up. Make the mountains brought low. And she spent a gajillion dollars and lots of lives of workers and stuff like that. And basically, like, leveled the mountains, or hills is probably more likely, and filled in the coolies and the low spots so that the roads would be level for her. And they built roads ahead of her. Like, like she actually reformed the earth so that her trip would be easier. That is diva times 100, right? Did I use that word right? I know there's a math thing that says times. That's, um, all right. So when it says prepare the way for the Lord, and we're going to get into the details of that, this herald is saying, look, The king's coming. And a lot of times when a herald would go ahead of a king in the east, like other than this ridiculous huge thing, they would clean up the trash. Or if there was a log across the road, you'd move it, right? Because like if the king gets stopped, that's inconvenient for him. Also, like he could get killed by an ambush or something. They would clear the paths. They would prepare the way. They would get rid of thorns and weeds on the sides. And they made everything look beautiful. So when the king came through, it looked nice. It's a little like Thanksgiving where you clean your house thoroughly so when the neighbors come, it's clean. You don't want them coming over and there's like dirty underwear in the fridge and socks laying everywhere and your children are visible. None of that stuff. You clean your house. This is the heralds. They would go ahead and say, clear the path. Make it clean. Make it pretty. Plant flowers. Um, He's coming. The messenger is secondary in this text, though he gets more attention He is secondary to what is going to come later. That is important to note because we hear this text and we think of John the Baptist. But this is a text about Jesus. Got it? And it's an incredible text about Jesus. So we're going to move along since I started late. um, And I don't want to keep you guys as long as last week. Um, So the messenger messenger is secondary. um, And we go to 4 and 5. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. 
Um, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, when he talks about the Lord is coming, first off, there's this grand, like, prepare the way and cut down the mountains and fill in the valleys. And people were expecting something spectacular when the Messiah showed up. Messiah, by the way, is the Jewish word for anointed one. By the way, the word Christ is the Greek word for anointed one. They're the same word, okay? But Messiah would be the chosen person of God who's going to come and deliver his people. And there are a bunch of Messiah-type characters in the scriptures, but Jesus is the Messiah, the last one, predicted in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Genesis and all over the scriptures. He is the last Messiah, the Messiah. And so they are saying, prepare, he is coming. And then it says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed to all people. Um, What's coming here is, what's coming here is God in the flesh. God himself will show up and his glory will be revealed to everyone. And this is a hard pill to swallow for the ancient Jews because God didn't show up in the flesh. It was even harder for the ancient, like everyone else, because they believed that the flesh was was worthless and that the spirit world was the only thing that mattered and all this other stuff. Like, And the gospel became like a stumbling block and culturally offensive to almost everyone But it also changed the whole world, which is part of what this text is talking about. Once upon a time, the world was a very different, very horrible place. It is not a wonderful place now, but it is a darn sight nicer than it was. Because Christ changed the world. He literally changed the the way people considered ethics, the way they looked at each other, the way that they treated each other, the way that, like... Like we we talk, the way that we pray, the way that we understand relationships and marriage and everything else. Christ came and changed it all. And so the mountains were made low and the valleys were filled up. But that's not the only thing that's going on here. And we learn from John the Baptist because John is there. He's baptizing and he is the voice in the wilderness. And he's basically saying, guys, get ready. The Messiah is coming. And what's he telling him to do? He's telling him to repent and be baptized. Ancient Jews did not get baptized. Baptism was a rite for, like, that the Jewish people did practice, but they only practiced it for Gentiles who were becoming Jews. To be baptized as a Jew was to say, I am so low and dirty and unclean and sinful, i got to start from the very beginning as a Gentile. And i got to be washed and made acceptable to be a son of Abraham. It's actually, you see part of that in the argument between John the Baptist and the Pharisees, where they're like, well, we're already sons of Abraham. We don't have to be baptized. And he's like, dude, you don't get it. Our sin is what's broken our relationship with God. Make yourself low. Bring yourself low. Be baptized back into the covenant because there's someone coming. And it's a big deal. And who comes is Jesus. And actually, he sets up a brand new covenant. He starts everything brand new. And suddenly, the flesh like all like god in the flesh who shows the glory of the lord to all flesh like all people are able to see god's glory because that includes the gentiles and the samaritans and the romans and the beggars and the prostitutes and the drunks and every other tax collectors every other rotten person in the world they all have the opportunity to see the glory of the lord and the new covenant is for all of them which again here we'll get to it in a second um and so as he's telling them to prepare himself Um, He's telling them, repent and make yourself ready to receive the Messiah. 
That is a huge thing. He's here. Make your life ready to receive him. Make your life ready to hear from him. Look at how much help you need. And that's hard, right? It is really easy to look at the people around you and say, man, I'm glad I'm not like those guys, right? It's hard to say, God, I need you. I I would be lost without you. I need Christ to come and save me from my sins. I need Christmas morning because I need God to come and stand amongst us and show us himself in the flesh. John the Baptist, his call to prepare the Jewish people is not a call to us. Okay, don't mistake that. However, as we go forward, we're going to talk about how we prepare to celebrate the coming of the Lord. How we prepare to to receive Christ. How we prepare to celebrate his birth. And so we're going to jump in to 6 to 11. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of a field. The grass withers and the flower fades. And when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The key phrase here is the word of our God will stand forever. Why is it talking about grass and everything else? It's because plants die, especially when you bring them to my house. Right? Like if you bring a potted plant to my house, it's not going to get water and it's going to die. Or if you just look in my yard, it's green certain times of the year whenever weeds grow. And then it starts to get cold and it turns brown. Because everything, everything, everything that lives in this world dies. Everything ages. Everything fades. Everything dies. And that is the curse that is on creation because of the fall. However, the word of the Lord stands forever. Well, the word of the Lord is about to show up. As John tells us, the word was made flesh. Um, Like he is literally God's word is Christ. Christ comes and he stands forever. He is crucified and dead and buried and risen again to glory, never to fade, never to be buried again, never to die again. And those of us who are in Christ, who are filled with the word of the Lord, know that there will be resurrection for us. And Isaiah is kind of side-eyeing this topic. He's hinting at this and saying the other thing here, that as the glory of the Lord is shown to all people, understand this guy who's coming, prepare the way for the Lord, the Lord is coming, it is God. He will never fade. He is coming. It is him. So 9 to 11, we're going to finish up. I'm sorry, I may have jumped over a whole lot of my points here. Uh, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the seas of Judea, or Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and with his arm rules for him, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend the flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. So what's he saying here? He's saying, listen, God himself is going to show up, and he is going to be the shepherd. Who are the sheep? We are. He's going to hold us close to him. He's going to guide us gently. He's going to love us. He's going to take care of us. And he is going to bring with him his reward, which is forgiveness, grace, 
new life in Christ. It is when I pray, I know that I, I know that I have a clear communication with God. Actually, Hebrews says that I can climb into his lap almost like Abba, Father. I can be in the very presence of God, surrounded by angels who worshipped him since forever, and I can speak to him directly. I cannot do that on my own. I can only do it with Christ's righteousness because sin is washed away. It's burned up in God's presence by his holiness, which is a consuming fire. But those of us who are in Christ, the fire doesn't affect us. We have a taste for what's good. We have a taste for holiness. We're not burned by that silliness. We're not burned by that, like the power of it. We enjoy it. We love God's holiness. It makes us different. There is only one other spot, by the way. This is wonderful. It's in the devotions for this week. I just want to tap on it going by. Um, There's one other spot. It's Malachi 3, and I will even read it to you. Uh, 3, 1 to 3. There's only one other, there's a handful of spots in Isaiah where the messenger is referenced. There's only one other spot where the messenger is referenced in the Old Testament outside of the book of Isaiah. And that's Malachi 3, 1. Um, Behold, I I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Um, it goes on. There's some cool stuff there. But real quick, what's it talking about? There's, it's awesome. If you look at the first time that God came to his temple, it's Solomon's temple, the dedication of Solomon's temple. And the glory of the Lord literally fills the place, and fire falls from the sky and consumes the offering that they made. And, like, God's glory is there, and they can't even go in because God's glory is so overwhelming that to approach it would be to burn up. And that was the first time the Lord who we seek suddenly came to the temple. The second time is about 40 days after Jesus was born, when Jesus was carried into the temple by his mother, and only two people realized that he was God. Only two. And they were people who had spent their whole lives looking for him. Why do I bring that up? Because as we prepare to find Christ in this season, there's so many things that will distract you. There's so many things that will draw your eyes to the side. And it's worse for kids, right? Kids think about Christmas. What do we think about? We think about Santa. We think about presents. Am I missing anything? Like that's the natural course of it, right? What do I get? What do I get? What do I get? And it is our job to point our kids, to prepare them so that they see Christ in these things, so they can see Christ in the symbols of Christmas, in in the evergreen tree that never dies and points upward to heaven and all the other weird little symbols that we've picked up over the centuries. It is our job to prepare so that we see him, so that we're not like the rest of the people in the temple who had no idea that God showed up. So we can be like those that saw him and said, oh my goodness, that is him. That's him. I've been waiting my whole life for this. How do we do this? How do we prepare the way for Christ in our lives? Um, Actually, I I got a a lot of indication from John. I really enjoyed talking to him for a few minutes this week. Uh, And he told me about preparing a field. Apparently, you have to prepare a field for planting every year, right? You don't prepare the field like it doesn't work out as well. Um, But the first time you prepare a field, you have to 
You have to run the duck foot and the disc, and you got to do it three or four times, and you got to pull the rocks out, and you got to kill the weeds and the animals and everything else. And it was weird because it reminded me of the parable where Christ tells this parable about a man who sows seeds. And he's sowing seeds basically in a field that isn't prepared. And the road where the ground is too hard to accept seeds, they don't grow. And in the rocks where there is stuff in the way of developing depth in Christ, they don't grow deep enough roots and they die. And the places where there's weeds and cheatgrass and and whatever else grows in field, I have no idea, uh, lily of the valley, it competes with the, with the crop, with the good things that are coming, and it chokes them out. For us as we approach Christmas, preparing is looking in our hearts, looking at our lives, intentionally going into those places and clearing them out. If you've got stuff that keeps you from giving everything to Christ, those are rocks. If you've got worries, if you've got stress, if you've got ongoing hurt, if you've got whatever and you're not pulling it up, you're letting yourself be divided, even trying to give your kids the very perfectest Christmas with the best gifts and better than when I was a kid and everything else, if that's the priority, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but if it chokes out Christ and dedication to Christ and time spent with Christ preparing, then it's a weed that needs to be tended. Not killed entirely. You can enjoy Christmas with your kids. Please don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. What I'm saying is, as we approach Christmas, as we approach Advent, as we go through this season, God calls us to prepare the way for the Lord. And to prepare the way for the Lord is to find repentance in our hearts, is to go and look and say, what do I need to do to make my field ready? It's to deal with our pride where we say, I'm better than everybody else, or I'm better than that guy, so... I'm okay, I don't have anything I need to repent of. I, I'm this, I'm that. Like where we think too much of ourselves and not enough of Christ. Where we have emptiness inside us. And a lot of people experience that at Christmas where we feel empty. And those low places can be filled up with the gospel. They can be filled up with the Holy Spirit. When the mountains are brought low with our pride and the valleys are filled up and the empty spots in our lives are filled with Christ, we create space. And finally, we have to make space for them. We have to stop. We have to stop. I didn't talk to anybody in the church about this. I have a handful of folks online who got copies of uh, devotions from me last week, and I was talking to them, looking for advice and feedback, and one of them said to me, like, hey, I, he's a minister. He's like, man, I don't stop and do this every day. Like, I can't stop and make time. I'm too busy during Christmas. I can't. I really want to spend time reading Scripture in the morning. I really want to spend time praying. I really want to do this, but there's so much to do. Um, we have to make space for him. If we don't put everything in the right row, it'll all grow a mess and you'll get nothing. And so my challenge to you this week is, as we approach Christmas, you're a little more over a week, two weeks left, prepare your heart. Look inside. Ask yourself, where are the rocks that are keeping me from developing depth? What's in the way? Create space for the single greatest gift that God could give us. That is Christ who came to die for our sins. We're going to pray, and I will let you guys go. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, be with us today. I pray that folks who were, were here and just heard from you, that they would know that they would know that you are good, Lord God, that the, 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 the spiritual elements, the talk of repentance, the talk of of seeking our hearts. This isn't stuff that would burn their mouths and their ears. 
Lord, Heather, Lord, that it would be something that challenges them toward holiness, toward closeness with you, which is really the goal of Christmas. It's you stepping from far away into our world and walking amongst us, like bridging that gap that sin created at the fall. And I pray, Lord God, that as we prepare to pull you into our hearts, as we prepare to draw you in and and to be in your presence and to be filled with your Holy Spirit, help us to be intimate and close with you. In Christ's name, amen. Have a good morning.